Good morning. Thanks for being here. We're excited about this Inside Out session that we're having with Dr. Peter Payne on uh, Christianity and science and how the two go together, or can they? And so we'll hear about that from, from Jeremy and, and Dr. Peter Payne. But I want to share a little bit about Dr. Peter Payne so you understand his perspective on things. Um, he is the director, managing director of the Institute for Credible Christianity, and he speaks and trains in the area of apologetics and outreach, um, has his Ph.D. in philosophy, and was with InterVarsity's graduate faculty ministry for 21 years. Um, his wife, Janet, has also joined us here today. Welcome, Janet. And they live uh, at Mount Hermon, actually, in Mount Hermon near Santa Cruz, and many of you know where that is. Uh, and they both serve students locally at UC Santa Cruz, I believe. Uh, they recently returned from a trip to Europe for IFES Europe. I already forget what that stands for, Peter. Thank you. And the goal there is, is to, to reach students in Europe for Christ. And so they go there, share the gospel, and speaking on various topics in countries like Bulgaria, Slovakia, and some really cool places, Norway uh, as well. Um, so, again, I've, I've personally attended uh, many of Peter's uh, sessions and seminars at Mount Hermon. And while he has all the scholastic, scholastic credentials, um, he's really a humble servant of God. And we're really excited and happy to have him and Janet here today. So please welcome Dr. Peter Payne. This feels so official, Peter. We, uh, that's right. We're, we're going to dialogue and you sit in, in the living room with us. Um, well, before we get started, why don't you just share with all of us a little bit about your background and, you know, your family and what you're doing currently and what drove you to pursue what you're doing? children that they're caring for right now. I got interested in science basically through the route of interest in philosophy. Grew up in a Christian home. My father's a professor of Old Testament. Went to Stanford. Uh, enjoyed the sciences. Enjoyed philosophy. Got into philosophy. And it turns out that one of the most important questions that philosophers deal with is the relationship between science and the Christian faith. So most of the philosophers I know are naturalists. People who believe the physical world's all that's there. And if you ask them uh, why they're not Christians or why they don't believe in God, typically they'll say science tells us that there is no God. That's their usual understanding about that. So as a Christian, I was interested in that, got interested in philosophy, got interested in science. Eventually, I did a PhD dissertation on the apparent fine-tuning of natural law. So why are the natural laws seemingly fine-tuned for the possibility of life? And that's why I did my PhD dissertation on We Love Students. We love interacting with atheists. We were involved in two campus missions in Norway in March, which was uh, mentioned part of our time there. Uh, I really enjoy interacting with them. We work with graduate students at UC Santa Cruz. But I love that kind of setting, and we love students, and we love interacting with them. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let me preface a little bit about where we're going this morning in our endeavors. And so that you understand... Um, Go ahead and click on your... There we go. I wondered if I could hear you. Sorry about that. All right, sorry. It's trained in philosophy, not technology. Not, not technology. <laughs> Amen. Um, 
So this morning, folks, I, I want to share with you that one of the reasons that we're addressing this issue is much of what you'll hear in the media, much of what you'll hear in the interscholastic areas of, of life, um, much of what you'll read, is that God and science are at odds. That you cannot embrace the sciences and embrace God as well. And I don't believe that to be true. I believe that science informs us all the more about God. And that science gives us a demonstration of more and more of who God is. Now the egregious problem that the church has on its hands is that we have basically said that because of the backlash against the church by the scientific community saying that these two are not simpatico, we've reacted just as harshly on the other end. And we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. So we're kind of here to reset the thinking on the whole. That, yes, you can believe in God fully and be excited about that without any equivocation, and you can embrace science as well, because science actually informs us about God. And so what's going to happen this morning is, many of you probably are thinking, well, then we're going to dive into this whole thing on evolution. That's up to you if you want to bring those questions later. Peter's going to be taking an um, exciting uh, approach to the dialogue that you can have with your friends. And I want you to pay attention to it because it's, it's brilliant. There's a plug for you. Okay. It's, it's brilliant. Because not, not diving in too hard into the, the uh, milieu of, of the arguments about evolution versus creationism and, and all those things that instantly get people's hackles up. Peter has gone straight to the issue of what it's like for the atheistic mind to consider who God is. And what's the challenge in trying to have that discussion? That's where we want you to land today, is understanding from, the, from an atheistic mindset, what is the challenge? And so how can we have that discussion in light of that challenge? And how does science involve itself as well? So also be preparing. We're going to talk for about 40 minutes. Peter's gonna, I'm going to be feeding him questions that he actually fed me during the week. So I'm, I'm a puppet here. Um, but then after about 40, 45 minutes, we're going to have Dave walk around for a Q&A time. And then this evening, we have a follow-up time at 4 o'clock here. So you have about three to four hours to get your questions together. And we're going to put Peter on the hot seat and, uh, and see how he can answer those questions for you. That's why I bring in Peter, because I couldn't answer your questions. <laughs> so let's pray, and then we'll get, we'll get into it. Let's lift our, our uh, time to the Lord. Father, there is a way that seems right to man, and yet it leads to death. That's what your scripture says in Proverbs 16. And Father, when you revealed that scripture to me as a teenager, it seemed harsh, it seemed stark, it seemed difficult, but it, it's no more that reality than the world that we live in, and, and even sciences would tell us. That there are things that we think are good and fun and great, and yet if we pursue those things sometimes to a detriment, they can be dangerous and sometimes fatal. Father, when it comes to the soul, when it comes to the truth of Scripture, there is a gravitas to this, God, that 
You are life. And to miss out on that because of a misunderstanding, because of uh, lack of thinking, because of uh, abrasive arguing, that, Lord God, there's so much at stake. So, Father, help us understand, guide Peter in his um, purveyance of truth so that we're equipped to boldly and brilliantly share about a God that we love, has changed our life, and is the author of science. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to put up on the screen for us this morning the format that we're going to work through. And we've got basically four questions we'll handle this morning. And the fifth we'll start to... Uh, uh, actually, we'll do five this morning. The sixth we'll, we'll check in uh, this evening. So... Peter, let me ask this question that's up on the screen right now. When people contend that science and Christianity are in conflict with one another, what typically do they have in mind? Well, Christians oftentimes think of the evolution question, sort of pops in our mind. But actually, if you talk to most non-Christians, that, that's not the key issue for them. Uh, so when asked, where, where does possible conflict arise? One could be between things the Scripture teaches and things the science seems to teach and potential tension there. But most non-Christians uh, are not convinced by that. They think the science tells us God doesn't exist at all. So even if the Bible didn't have the opening chapters of Genesis, that doesn't mean they'd be Christians. They would say the lesson of science is that this is a completely physical world. Uh, another place uh, where they oftentimes uh, uh, see conflict is they equate scientific reasoning with reason itself. So if it's not demonstrable by science, then it's not rational. Another th- conflict they oftentimes uh, see uh, has to do with the uh, uh, thinking that there's an intrinsic tension between belief in natural laws and belief that miracles take place. So even though there's good evidence to believe that uh, the miracles have taken place, typically they'll say, no, uh, you have to have an extremely high bar of evidence uh, because it's a miracle we're talking about, so they simply will not believe because I think there's a tension between believing in genuine laws of nature and believing in uh, genuine miracles. Another thing they'll point out is that oftentimes uh, people have claimed miracles, and when they've been investigated, found out, no, it didn't quite happen that way. Or, you know, the Internet, there's lots of things that come on the Internet, and be careful, don't sort of pass <laughs> odd uses to hear about such and such. Because a lot of things get passed along that, that are bogus, that aren't true. And it is true, there have been many reports of miracles when they've been investigated. Either they didn't happen at all or they weren't miracles that took place. So they'll point to that as an argument. Another thing which they'll sometimes point to is looking at the human being ourselves, looking at the human mind. And they'll point out the fact that when I have thoughts, there's neurons taking place in my brain. If somebody shuts down my brain, my thoughts shut down. And so this close correlation between what's going on in the brain and what's going on in my mind, they would conclude from that that we're simply biological entities. So there's a variety of issues that come to play, and we'll touch on some of those this morning, and what we don't get to, we can come back to in the Q&A this afternoon. Excellent. I know that uh, some personal friends of mine, and even family, relatives, um, one in particular would fit in this demographic of being a naturalist. 
you know, if you can't see it, if you can't touch it, it, it it's, it's not something that we're going to put into the equation. And I think that that's what I see and what I want us to embrace. And Peter and I talked about this earlier this week at a fine diner in Santa Cruz. Um, there's a lot of science going on there as well. Um, is that if we try to take the scriptures and use it as a science textbook and, and debate from that point of view with someone who's looking at it like a naturalist would, then we're doing a disservice to the scriptures. The scriptures were never written as a science textbook. And just going back again to Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Our entire relationship with Christ is based on faith. That's how he has designed it. One of the best things that we can instruct our people in and equip you with is the understanding that embrace faith. This is not something, and, and, and embrace the difference between the naturalist or the atheist thinking that they want to be able to prove it, see it, empirical evidence, where God is saying that you cannot have relationship with me unless you have faith. Be comfortable with that. Don't feel like you have to give a scientific evidence. And then as we move forward, as Peter moves forward, you're going to hear how science works with all of that as well. But never try to supplant the scriptures, as God's revealed authority on who he is in life, to be a science textbook. It just, it's not meant to be that way. It wasn't written that way. So let's get to question two. And uh, Peter's sitting here saying, that wasn't part of the script. I'm not sure what was going on there. That, I'm done. The rest is all Peter. Let's start with the equating of science with reason. When you were talking... Well, let's do the success of science. Oh, let's go to the success of science. That's yeah, where we yeah, are. Yeah. That's correct. Let's start with the equating of science with reason. When you were talking earlier this week at the diner, you used an analogy of a fishing net. And in response to this, could you elaborate on what that means? Okay, actually, that's, that's the next one on the, on the list. Let me, let me say something about the success of science first. Go ahead. All right, all right. So I, I said that people look at what science is able to accomplish, and they think that it leaves no room for God. From the smallest scale, the subatomic scale, to the cosmos, science is able to, to study things. And we don't find places where, aha, see, there's a gap here, and God has to do regular or occasional miracles simply to keep the, the, the natural world running. And I think they shows that, that God does not exist. I think it's important to ask ourselves, what kind of world has God created? And we're not God, so we can't sort of say, well, if I were God, this is the way I would create it. But to me, it's not at all surprising, given that God is able to create an exquisitely ordered world, why shouldn't he create an exquisitely ordered world? Why is it that God would create a world where at various places he needs to do regular miracles just to keep things running? An example of that is Isaac Newton thought that God needed to adjust the orbits of the planets every once in a while just to keep them stable. And if you've been a Christian at that time, you might thought, ah, even the great Isaac Newton sees a need for God here. Well, about 100 years later, the, the, the French philosopher scientist Pierre Laplace showed that Isaac Newton was wrong that know that God doesn't need to adjust the orbits. Physics actually tells us why there's a stability to the orbits of the, of the planets. Now, should you have been threatened by Pierre Laplace's accomplishment? Here, here's your thought, something that science isn't able to explain. Pierre Laplace comes along and says science is able to explain it. Should that have been a threat? And my contention is it should not have been a, th a threat to you because we believe in a God who's both all-powerful and he's all-knowing. Being all-powerful, he can create any possible world. Being all-knowing, he knows all the possibilities. 
Now, presumably, God could create a world where he needs to play cosmic mechanic and he needs to adjust the orbits of the planets every once in a while to keep them stable. But we know that a possible world is one with its physics dictates the stability of the planetary orbits. Now, should it be surprising to us that God would choose the latter option to create a world where physics gets what God wants rather than for God needing to jump in and to adjust things every once in a while? And from an engineering standpoint, if you're designing something, and you can either design it so it's self-adjusting, or you can design it such it needs to be adjusted every, every year, surely the more elegant solution is to make it self-adjusting. Well, God has created a wonderfully ordered universe, which is self-adjusting in many, many ways. And it seems to me that God's created a universe where he doesn't at any point need to intervene just to keep things functioning. Set aside the whole question of natural history, evolution to one side. We look at the order of nature around us. It seems to me that God has created an exquisitely ordered world. And it shouldn't be surprising to us that God would create such a world, given that God knew about it, and he has the power to create such a world. The question then becomes, if God has created a world within which there are no gaps in the normal operation of the world, does that mean that God never does miracles within history? So I want to make a distinction between what I call order of nature miracles and miracles of history. So order of nature miracles would be God adjusting the orbits of the planets to keep them stable. A miracle of history is something God does at one time for specific purposes. If you look at the miracles in Scripture, you find they're all, or there's a creation, but that's sort of a a one-time thing too. You find that they are miracles of history. They're not things that are needed simply to sustain the universe and keep it running moment by moment. So from a biblical standpoint, we have lots of evidence that God works miraculously in history, but there's no reason the Christian think we should expect to find gaps within the normal order of nature where God has to sustain it by doing regular miracles. Excellent. So I'm going to give this another shot. Okay. The start with the equating of science with reason. Is that where we are? Yeah, people will sometimes tell me, look, if you want to know something of certainty, don't go to theology. Don't go to philosophy. Philosophers and theologians, they just have all their speculations. Uh, and they're, they're, if you really want to know something with any confidence, turn to science and stick with science. Just stay there. And they have this notion that really the only good grounds of reason is scientific reasoning. So reason and science get equated together. The response you should give to them is not even atheists believe that. Okay. Everybody believes that reason can function without science. Okay, what is science? The key to science, basically, is you come up with a theory or hypothesis to try to explain something. Yes, if this hypothesis is true, then what would I expect to also find to be true? So this brings in the step of experimental testing. So if your theory is correct and you infer from that something else ought to be observed, then you go out and seek to observe it. Now, that's very helpful, and that's really the key to science. It has this sort of self-check within it. But at the same time, it's not true that everything that we believe rationally, reasonably, we have to have experimental tests on it. There are many, many things within history where you gather the evidence together, and it's quite clear from the evidence this is the best explanation. It doesn't matter whether there's any further evidence that you don't have that you can gather. If, you have the, if it's the best explanation given, given the evidence, then it's a reasonable conclusion. So in the history, generally speaking, we don't need scientific method. Now, scientific method sometimes could come in, but good reasoning basically asking what best explains the data that we have. And if one explanation explains it the best, you don't have to bring science in. 
So reason is not the same thing as science, even though science is helpful. So when people equate them together, it's simply not true. History basically runs without the need of science, and people all the time make judgments based on the evidence where they can't make further tests to find out whether or not it's true. So it's a mistake to equate those two together. Now, let me give an example that would be helpful here. Is suppose that you are out uh, fishing, and you have a fishing net in its three-inch grid on the net. And you've been fishing for quite a while, and somebody asks you, have you caught any fish shorter than three inches? And you think, come to think of it? No, I haven't. All the fish, fish I've caught are longer than three inches. Well, do I conclude from that there must be no fish shorter than three inches in my lake? No, your net can't catch any fish that are shorter than three inches. It's like the person says, I use my net of science and scientific method, and I can't discover God. Does that mean God doesn't exist? No. It's like the Russian cosmonaut who was looking out the window with space caps and says, I don't see God anywhere. Duh. Science can't see God. Science is not the kind of being that can be observed by God. The Christian faith historically has, has rested upon experience and upon history. And experience and history typically are not things that can be, can, can, be, can be investigated scientifically. A person says, the Holy Spirit gave me this sense. There's no neurosurgeons able to look at your brain. Ah, yes, I see. There's the Holy Spirit in your brain. <laughs> no, the science simply can't answer that kind of question. And when it comes to history, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But there's no scientific test you can give to see whether Jesus rose from the dead. But that doesn't mean there aren't historical evidence for it. So the Christian faith rests primarily on history, and history is something which doesn't require science. Science can sometimes be helpful. So remember that reason is not the same thing as science. The Christian faith rests on things which typically do not bring science directly into them, but nonetheless, reason is very important in them. I think one of the things that I, in reading some, um, some texts and some journals, uh, one in particular by John Lennox, uh, he uses a lot of the same reasoning that is uh, bantered around within the scientific community, and, and that can be a way that we can have those discussions, is listen carefully to the reasoning, the, the logical processes that are used in, uh, in discussion to refute the evidences of God. And what Lennox says, and he's just borrowing from others that have run in front of him, well, then using that same reasoning, then the atheist cannot prove that God does not exist. And if so, you're going to hold this process and linear thinking of how you arrive to this point. You can use that same linear thinking to saying that the onus of responsibility, if you're going to claim God does not exist, that has to be provable. And until it's such a time that you find that it is provable, it is not provable, therefore God exists. It's a syllogism. And, and so y'all need to go take philosophy 101 and equate that with your spiritual guidance. Yes, um, yes an example, if a person says, the only things you can believe with certitude are things you get from science. What about that statement? The only things you believe with certitude are things you get from science. Is that something you get from science? No. Therefore, you ought not to believe that with certitude. Right. <laughs> All right. So people oftentimes make statements that actually end up being self-contradicting. Let's consider the success of science objections. Science has been successful in addressing... We, 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 did, that, we did that one. We, we did that one. Yeah, so now we're right. down to the uh, next I, one. I'll, I'll get it. Yeah. I'll get it. Okay. I'm going to evolve into this. Okay, okay here we go. Uh, so what you're saying is that from... 
the perspective of Christian theology, we should not find it odd to discover that God has chosen to create an exquisitely ordered world, um, one where it's normal functioning, God does not need to perform uh, miracles just to keep it running. Right. Why don't you comment on that? Yeah, so it, I've argued that that makes perfectly good sense. <clears throat> the atheist may well say, okay, uh, that's true, but can't one still argue from a lack of miracles within nature around us as saying that miracles simply don't happen with history either? So the, the next question, I think, has to do with uh, the, the claim there's no historical, uh, no, no, no miracle which is sufficiently demonstrated by evidence to say that miracles have ever happened. So I've made a distinction between order of nature miracles, and I've suggested maybe there aren't any order of nature miracles. And I said there are miracles of history. Now, the atheists may object to say, ah, but there really is no good, good reason to believe that those miracles have ever happened. Okay. Okay. So that was one of the... So now should I ask, I'm going to yeah. predicate everything okay. now. Um, what are the claim that the atheists, uh, or by the atheists, that we, uh, we don't have any actual instances of reported miracles where the evidence for them is sufficient to warrant belief in their occurrence? In other words, the atheists may grant the distinction you make between natural processes that constitute the order of nature and individual events within history and grant that an absence of order of nature miracles does not provide strong reason for assuming an absence of miracles in history. But we, in fact, don't have strong evidence to warrant that belief uh, that miracles in history have occurred. Speak to that. Yes, you oftentimes have people making that kind of claim. Now, when they make this claim, it is true that one needs to have more evidence for a report of a miracle than for ordinary events. If somebody says something which is a miracle, uh, you ought to have a higher bar, simply because there are so many people out there that say things that aren't true. I mean, sort of the Internet stories that come along, you have to realize, oh, you need a higher bar of evidence to be able to weed out some of these false reports. But at the same time, the question is, how high should the bar be? And the atheists, by saying that there are no instances of reports of miracles that have sufficient evidence behind them, they say that because they set the bar very, very high. And I ask the question, okay, why do they set the bar as high as they do? And I think there's a danger of circular reasoning on their part. Circular reasoning is where you're assuming what you're actually supposed to be demonstrating. So they're supposed to demonstrate that no, no reports have actually met a sufficiently high bar. But the only way in which they, which, which they place the bar so high is by assuming that science tells us that they can't happen. But if art says science doesn't tell us they can't happen, science tells us that the natural order doesn't require miracles to make it run, but it doesn't tell us that no miracles in history take place. So science can tell us how a normal birth takes place, but science can't tell us whether a virgin birth could take place. Science can't tell us anything about that. That's a miracle. Right. It's something that science cannot address. If the person says, well, science gives us strong reason to believe that we should discount any report of a miracle and put, it high, put that bar way up here, what they're doing is they're taking something they've already granted namely that the success of science doesn't show miracles in history can't take place, and then they bring that in to say that no actual instances of miracle have sufficient evidence. So they're engaged in circular reasoning by placing the bar way up here by, by, uh, by assuming something that is not the case. Science doesn't tell us that. So there does need to be a higher bar than normal, but there are lots of instances of miracles that do have a significant amount of evidence behind them. 
Now, there, there, there are ones which are false, but there are plenty of them out there where it's really quite substantial. As a Christian, the key one for me is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. If you set aside the question for one moment, can miracles take place? You ask, what's the historical case for Jesus' resurrection? It's really very good. And you have a quite strong case for saying Jesus rose from the dead. What enables you to say that there have, no, have, there have not been any miracles in the past? It's really that you've placed the bar so high that all the good reports get dismissed along with the ones which are bogus. And that's just simply biasing the case, whereas, in fact, we have good reason to believe that God has done miracles in the past. So, as I heard you there towards the end, speaking towards uh, false reports of miracles, and the scientific community becomes jaded because uh, as you research those, they, they tend to not hold up. Um, they don't pass the litmus test, whatever you want to say it. Um, do you want to speak a little bit more to that, or do you want to move on to the next question? Listen, I'll, I'll speak some of that. So the, the claim is, well, science has investigated a lot of reports about miracles and found a number of them to be false. Either the event didn't happen at all, or the event that reported there's some easy natural explanation for it, and there's no reason to say that it was a miracle. Now, does that give us good reason to think that genuine miracles never happen? Uh, let me use an illustration from uh, UFOs, because most atheists actually believe that there could be intelligent, intelligent beings out, elsewhere out, out there. But at the same time, there's lots of bogus reports. And the bogus reports create this static, and you need to have a higher bar to sort of clear out that, that static. But I think very few atheists would say you ought to place the bar so high you can never be convinced that, in fact, an alien ever arrived. So I use that as an analogy to say there's lots of static when it comes to people making reports of miracles when they aren't the case. But if, in fact, you would expect that to be the case, whether or not there are genuine reports, the fact that you find a lot of false reports doesn't tell you whether genuine reports ever happen. It simply makes, makes it harder to pick out the genuine ones from the false ones. So the fact that scientists have been able to investigate some reports and find that they don't bear up really tells us almost nothing. Plus, remember, when science does investigate a report, oftentimes they can't come to a conclusive answer to it. Does that mean you have ones which are disproven, and over here you've got ones which, well, maybe they are miracles? No, they don't say maybe they're miracles, they just say unresolved. So the only two categories they allow are the ones which were not miracles and unresolved. And lo and behold, miracles don't show up on the list. Because the genuine miracles don't get marked as genuine miracles when you're investigating scientifically. They just come up with ones where science isn't able to answer, answer it. And it's very difficult to demonstrate scientifically that a miracle actually took place. Even if you demonstrate that an event took place, it doesn't mean that it was a miracle. I had a conversation one time with a person where I was laying out evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And it took about a half hour laying this out. At the end of it, he said, okay, so maybe Jesus did rise from the dead. Strange things happen. Right? So even if, even if that did take place, it seems obvious to me this is a miracle, a person could say, well, science hasn't explained it yet. Surely science will explain it someday. Excellent. We'll work through and start thinking of questions because uh, in just a few moments we're going to turn it over to an open Q&A time. And while the majority of what Peter's talking about, he's arguing from the, the miraculous to engage in this conversation, that doesn't mean that that's the only area that you have to ask questions in. It, it can be anything connected to. Think specifically to maybe some individuals you know. And what would be the questions that are difficult and challenging that they've asked you? And 
We just don't have that answer. That's what we want to accomplish here this morning. Um, a lot of what Peter's talking about is uh, philosophical based in its reasoning. And so big challenge for us as, as the Christian community is that we need to train ourselves in knowing how to reason through things with people in a conversational level. Um, and with that, I'm going to ask you a question for the simple sake of reasoning. Which question are we on? Are we on the next one? <laughs> are we on brain? Do we want to go to questions or do we want to try to cover brain research? Uh, let me say something about natural law and miracles. Uh, when I do, uh, in fact, this summer, if you go to Mount Hermon, I'll be doing a pair of seminars. One will be evidence for the resurrection. And the other one will, will be entitled, But Dead Men Don't Rise. Okay? <laughs> so you do evidence of the resurrection. Is, is the skeptic going to be convinced? No. Dead men don't rise. So surely there must be some other explanation for it. So that drives the assumption the miracle simply cannot happen. They assume that it's contrary to belief in, in laws of nature. But in fact, laws of nature only tell us the ways in which nature normally runs. It doesn't tell us whether God ever makes exceptions to those. And to think that there's an intrinsic conflict between believing in laws of nature and believing in genuine miracles simply isn't true. Now, it is the case that laws of nature do develop expectations for us. So if you believe something's a law of nature, then you have an expectation of what will happen. But the fact that, but the fact that you find something that, uh, that does, well, that you find something that doesn't fit with your expectation. If it doesn't fit with your expectation, well, maybe there's some natural explanation, maybe not. For people who assume that there must be some natural explanation, we simply haven't come across it yet, that's a huge faith position, particularly if to accept it is going to mean an enormous overthrow of most of the things we believe in physics right now. So if Jesus died, not just uh, for half an hour was he in cold water or something like that, but if he died and was in the tomb and then three days later uh, rose again, there's no way in which you give a natural explanation of that because we know that cells decompose, they decay. And to say that, well, no, there's some chemical explanation for it would be a huge revolution within chemistry, within physics. You would have to revamp all of science as we know it to say, surely science has an explanation for it. Seems to me to be an irrational position to, to take. Let me mention a few things just to hang on to because some of this has been quite abstract. So a few things to hang on to. One, when people say science is the only sure way of knowing anything, remember, history does not require it. Science involves empirical testing, but when the evidence strongly stands behind a particular thesis, you're reasonable in believing it. In fact, anybody's reasonable in believing it, and we use that kind of reasoning all the time. Connect that with the net illustration, okay? The net of science hasn't caught it. Well, would you expect the net of science to catch it? Or ask the person, would you expect that science would be able to discover God? If the person says, I'll, I, I won't believe in God unless I discover him in a test tube, whatever you would discover in a test tube would not be God. Okay? So hold on to those kinds of things, and hopefully that will be helpful uh, for you. I will say something about uh, the brain research, and you can come back to it later on. Is It's quite clear to me that when I have thoughts, my thoughts are dependent upon things which are taking place within my brain. Does that go against what Scripture says? No. Scripture says that we're both spiritual beings and we're physical beings. And the two mesh, and, uh, mesh together. And whenever I have thoughts, my brain is involved. If I were to have some thought and there was no activity going on, I suppose, suppose I'm uh, uh, on a hospital bed and they have some brain scan and my brain waves are absolutely flat. And, but suddenly it pops up again and my brain's going and they discover that I had all these thoughts 
when my brain waves are flat. That would be very surprising to me. <laughs> Seems to me as long as we're alive in this life, whenever we have thoughts, there are brain activities which are going on. But that doesn't mean that we are simply reducible down to simply physics. In fact, one of the biggest problems for science these days is that it's really unable to account for persons. I mean, do persons exist? I had a conversation with an atheist, and he said, uh, 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 well, why should I believe anything that I uh, can't actually observe? And I said, well, do you believe that you exist? And he was a philosopher, so I knew what I was talking about. Not your body exists. <laughs> but do you, as a subjective agent, someone who is, who is, who is having thoughts and making do you exist? Or does only your brain exist? And I think he'd be, he'd say, well, okay, I can see what, what you mean. Most atheists actually believe that we do exist. And many atheists actually believe that we have free will, even though none of those things make, make sense from an atheistic standpoint. Atheists have a very difficult time being able to account for conscious experiences. And it's not simply that science hasn't been able to account for yet. Even if you knew exactly what was taking place, had to take place in someone's brain for a person to be conscious, to have conscious experiences, and even if you knew exactly what distinguished an experience of red from an experience of blue, if you knew exactly what neurons are firing, how it, would that tell you that, in fact, uh, would that explain consciousness to you? It wouldn't. You say, well, why is it that this particular pattern of firing neurons would give rise to consciousness? There is an atheist philosopher, Thomas Nagel, who in 2012 came out with a book, and the title of the book was Mind and Cosmos. And the subtitle is Why Materialism and Neo-Darwinism Are Almost Certainly False. Hmm. This is by an atheist. <laughs> How can an atheist be saying, we're writing about why materialism is almost certainly false? The reason he says that is it's quite clear to him that we do have experiences, that you can't analyze experiences into behavior. When I feel pain, it's not just I'm behaving with pain behavior or I'm vocalizing. If a person says, well, where is this pain you're talking about? I say, I can't point to it, but I feel it. I know it's real. And most atheists actually recognize it's real. So even when it's something as basic as human experience, science is on the wrong track in trying to say it simply matter. Hmm. Uh, there's something missing. And here's an atheist philosopher saying there's something missing. And what he's actually looking for is something between theism and materialism or naturalism. He's looking for something that could be in between the two of these. I don't think he's going to find it. But if the person who says science explains everything, actually science is having a very great the difficulty in being able to account for persons, us as agents, us as conscious ex experiences, and it's not simply a matter of their lacking the data which would then explain it to them. There was an earlier essay written by Thomas Nagel, this atheist philosopher, entitled, What is it like to be a bat? Not a baseball bat, <laughs> but the animal, okay? Uh, I love it when philosophers make a title for a philosophical essay <laughs> with something as great as, what is it like to be a bat? And his contention was, surely bats have some kind of experience. They're mammals, they fly around, and surely when they're flying around the cave, they have some kind of experience. But it's not going to be the same kind of experience that we have visually, because it's not visual experience. They make these chirping sounds, and it bounces off the walls. And presumably, they have some kind of experience of the cave, the sort of three-dimensional experience. But it's not going to be just like visual experience for us. We don't have that kind of sensation but presumably is like something to be a bat when it's flying around the cave. 
Then he says, suppose that you knew everything you could possibly know about the brain of a bat or its physiology or about how sound waves get translated in neural firings and how that controls muscles. And even if you know exactly what is, how, how exactly a bat functions, would you know what it's like to be a bat? And it's quite obvious to me, and most people reading this essay, no, you wouldn't know what it's like to be a bat. But is there a genuine fact about what it's like to be a bat? If there's a genuine fact about what it's like to be a bat, that means that there are more facts than physical facts. But the materialist says, ultimately, everything is a physical fact. But he's arguing, no, there is something that's like to be a bat. Surely that's a fact, but it's not a physical fact. So he says, physicalism or materialism simply has to be false. There's reality in the world out there that science uh, in its current model of understanding things is unable to account for. If science were able, ever, ever able to incorporate experiences within understanding science, it would be a revolution of science and the basic categories would not look like science looks like today. So when the person says science tells us there is no God, I would say science tells us that well, just looking at, looking at the world, it's quite clear that science doesn't have the whole explanation. In fact, it makes more sense that theism is true, that God is there, than naturalism is true, given that we have experiences. After all, if there's mind at all, surely there's something behind or within the universe that accounts for it. Now, the atheist philosophers want to say there's something like mind within the physical world. That doesn't make a whole lot of, a whole lot of sense to me, but he's looking for something that can ground it. As Christians, we believe, yes, there is mind behind this world, and that's why conscious experience exists not only within us, but within bats and other sentient creatures. So even apart from what Scripture says, there's good reason to believe that science doesn't have all the answers at this point. And there's good reason to believe that, the, that our understanding that we're not just physical beings is true. There's a spiritual side to us which transcends the physical. Uh, the atheists may recognize that and say there's experiences. There's some people who say, well, they're just, uh, just uh, phenomena, uh, properties that arise out of physical systems. But in fact, if they're just properties arising out of physical systems, then how can these affect anything? How can my feeling of pain affect anything? How can my beliefs, my desires affect anything? And most atheists would say, your desire for ice cream does actually affect your going out and buying some ice cream. Sure. <laughs> Even though that desire is not a physical thing. So in, in, interacting around these things, realize that science is very, very good at what it does. But it doesn't address all of reality. In fact, it doesn't address all of reality that all of us are aware of, whether we're atheists or not, yeah. or Christians. It's not an end to the means. I think a lot of what enters into the arena for us is that there are those in the scientific community or even the uh, scholastic community that want to claim the intellectual high ground. That, that if you're going to be smart, intelligent, if you're going to be a rational person, then you're going to hold to the sciences. It is the weak-willed person that holds to faith. And yet, within their own arguments, they are holding to faith. It's just they're serving a different God. They're serving one of intellectualism. And yet, a big challenge of that is that there are plenty of Christian scientists in all the science fields that still ascribe to faith, and it's actually growing in momentum. Now, help me out with this and help them. And Dave, I'm going to have you go ahead and get up. And Dave's going to start circulating around the room. Raise your hand if you have a question. I'm going to voice the first question. Give us one thing. When you say neural, not, not all of us can engage in a conversation on the, uh, on the level of, of, uh, 
of the thinking and espousing that Brother Peter does here. So when I, you say neural, I think of my cousin in Arkansas. Um, you know, that's about the level of intellectual prowess I have. Um, so for many of us, we can't have a conversation like you would have. What is the one thing that maybe all of us, whether it's someone who's in middle school, whether it's someone who's uh, selling Mary Kay or, or whatever it is, and they interact with somebody and they bring up some uh, uh, sound bite. And by the way, we're in the society that lives by sound bites, right? Um, you know, as we get longer protracted reasoning, some of us start to gloss over a little bit because we're not used to that kind of processing and thinking. And that's where the scientific community would get, um, what's a good word, irritated. Yes, that would be it, irritated with us. And so, folks, that is part of our responsibility, is to move beyond sound bites. So if there's one common thing that you can equip us with, that maybe not all of us are PhD level, in, in, a, in a real quick answer, what would be that one area you would challenge us to lock this down, hold on to this line of thinking, and, and use it um, as a qualifier, maybe? Yeah, and thinking about people who believe the physical world is all that's there, and there are lots of people out like that. I think it's worth asking the question, do you believe that you exist? Or put another way, are you the same person as the, say, as Peter Payne, 2014, also the Peter Payne in 1955 when I was five years old. And I maintain, that yes, it is the same person. There's lots of things that have changed, but it's still the same me. So the things that I did back then, I did them back then. It wasn't somebody else. Mm -hmm. I did them back then. But if the only reality is physical reality, there's very, very little of that Peter Payne at five years old that's the same as me. The physical reality is almost totally different. So from a naturalistic standpoint, there's no continuity of person. Hmm. But do you really exist? And if you think you really exist and you think you really make decisions, not just neurons firing and decisions happening, but you actually make decisions, that's a position that makes sense from a Christian point of view, but it's not something that makes sense from an atheist point of view. Now, other religions sometimes also believe in persons, depending on your religion. Sometimes they do and sometimes sure. they don't. But recognize that belief in persons is something that distinguishes a Christian position from a position of naturalism or atheism where the physical world is all that exists. And if they believe that persons are real, they're at least one step towards considering the Christian faith and realizing perhaps science doesn't have all the answers. Excellent. Does anybody have a question yet? Yes, Diana. Hi. Um, I had discussion with somebody one time about, you know, science isn't an exact science. It, it constantly is evolving. It's constantly changing. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, they thought the sun revolved around the, the earth, and that's what all of science believed. It's not true. It's incorrect. Once upon a time, they thought the world was flat. That was proven not true once upon a time. Science was absolutely sure there was nothing smaller than an atom, nothing and they opened an atom up, and there was all kinds of junk inside. <laughs> Wrong again. And then when I grew up and went to school, there were only nine planets, and they all had their perspective moons. That's absolutely incorrect now. I can't even remember what we lost a planet. We've gained some other things out there. There's a whole bunch more moons than I thought there was. Everything I learned was incorrect. So science, I say that to scientists and people. So are you absolutely sure, based on the way science believes now, 
that you're absolutely right about everything because it changes constantly. Yeah, when you're confronted with something where there seems to be a tension between what scientists are saying and what it seems to you the scripture is saying, recognize that science doesn't have the final word. Recognize, however, that your interpretation of scripture may not be the, the final word either. Uh, and not all of scripture is intended to be taken literally. So if you're reading the Psalms and the psalmist says God shelters under his wings, you don't conclude, ah, what do you know? God does have wings. <laughs> you know, it's a metaphor, an illustration to help say that God cares for us like a mother hen cares for her, for her chicks. So we need to be able to look at both sides of it. And ask, Am I sure that I've been understanding it right? I'm an evangelical and I believe that everything the scripture teaches is true. But we need to understand the message as the message was intended and not simply take our questions and then import it back in and read something into it that wasn't there to begin with. Science can be mistaken, but at the same time, if you say, well, science can always change, think about the person who said, well, maybe Jesus did rise from the dead. Science thought that was impossible, but if Jesus rose from the dead, science changes, so therefore, science just hasn't explained it yet. (laughs) To have real evidence for the Christian faith with the resurrection, one has to say, one can have pretty strong certainty that this belief that dead, dead, don't rise again, is going to endure within science. It's not as though science was wrong about that. Science was right about that, and because they're right about that, that means it had to be a miracle that took place. So if you look at the change in science, there are things which are taking place, taking place, and sometimes at the conceptual level, there are huge changes, but when it comes down to expectations of things we've observed a great deal, not everything changes. So the change that took place between Newtonian physics and general relativity was conceptually a huge change. But every... every uh, prediction that Newtonian physics makes in normal circumstances still is true. So to say something, it's, 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 say there's changes, doesn't mean that the expectations of science are simply overthrown. So one has to say there's some things within science that will change, but at the same time there are lots of things which won't. In fact, the argument for miracles gets stronger as science gets stronger because you have greater and greater reason to believe that science will not eventually explain this and therefore, you have more reason to believe that actually God brought about. It had to be something beyond the natural realm that brought about. So you need to have attention to when science can, isn't the final word. But at the same time, don't say, well, science just can change all the time. Otherwise, you're like the friend who say, well, strange things happen. Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe science will explain it eventually. Yeah, so the Christians shouldn't fear science, right? So Christians should not fear science. And, and that's maybe where we have given the atheist or the scientific or the naturalist, materialist, whoever it would be, a little bit of fodder that we're turning a blind eye towards the very things that God has created and instituted and set in motion because we don't know how to have the conversation. And, and so that's what I want to encourage us to do is, is pursue intellectual honesty and don't be fearful that that means that we negate the scriptures. The scriptures are not negated by science. They are, they are um, upheld by the sciences. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, where? Okay, Samuel. Okay, so I have a question which I've been asked a lot by, like, by, it's like by some of my non-Christian friends. So the Big Bang Theory states that the universe was created 13 billion years ago, and then it took a billion years to develop until the Earth came 4 billion years later, and so on. And so they tell me, okay, but the creation story says that all this happened in seven days, you know. So then they say, okay, so in that case, the Bible cannot be true, you know. So then, okay, how would I respond to something like that, you know. 
Yeah, one has to ask, what in fact is the message in the opening chapters of Genesis? That's what we're committed to as Christians. We're not committed to saying that God has wings because the psalmist talks about uh, God sheltering us under his wings. If you were to transport back in time, say, to a Babylonian priest, and there's a Babylonian creation story, and if you were asking the Babylonians, is everything in your Babylonian creation story intended literally? I don't know what the answer would be to that, because ancient people use symbolism a lot. It's not just modern people that use symbolism. They use symbolism back then. So it's not clear in terms of just the genre or the kind of literature when it's a, that account of how the world came to be, how much is intended literally and how much is intended from a literary standpoint. When you look at Genesis 1, there's indications, I think, that it's not all intended literally. So, for instance, you have sun, moon, and stars being created on day 4, but you have night and day on days 1, 2, and 3. Well, how can you have night and day before there was a sun? Well, it's been, uh, one explanation was given to me, well, there was light coming from where the sun would be for the first three days, and then God gave a source to that light, namely, namely the sun, on day four. <clears throat> now, was that what Moses meant? I don't think so. Uh, another way of looking at it is that when it says create a day and night on day one, day and night was basically the, the framework for time. So people said, well, what happened in day, day one is God is setting up the temporal framework of time, and then each day is different aspects of our universe are being created by God that result eventually in day six when humankind is created, all the land animals created, and the statement, everything God's created is very good. Even when it talks about evening and morning was the, uh, was the first day, the second day, does that mean 24-hour days? Uh, the seventh day doesn't seem to be a 24-hour day because it doesn't end. It doesn't say the seventh day, the evening, morning. So it seems as though some people said, well, there, there were six days, and the seventh day continues all the way to the present. Evening, in, in, I've been told that in, in Hebrew, evening comes from the word for chaos, and morning comes from the word for order. So in terms of the meaning, God is continually bringing order out of chaos. When you look at days four, five, and six... They seem to be an elaboration on days one, two, and three. Day one talks about the creation of the heavens and the earth. Day four are the things you find in the heavens, the sun, moon, and stars. Day two is the, create, the dividing of the waters below and above, the sky and the sea. Day five are the things you find in the sea, the fish, and what you find in the sky, the birds. Day three is the creation of dry land, all vegetation, and day six are all the land animals. Now, it might just be coincidence, but it may be that, in fact, as a literary device, the author intends to sort of lay out the domains in 1, 2, and 3, and then 4, 5, and 6 elaborate what you find within those. And if we simply assume it has to be chronological, well, are we sure that's what actually what was, was intended? So we're not sure about that. And part of the difficulty of thinking is chronological, as you look at the layers, you find that birds are always in geological layers above where the dinosaurs are. Well, why is that if they existed at the same time? Whereas the birds seem to have been created before dinosaurs, the birds being created on day five, and dinosaurs being land animals created on day six. But assumes that the intent of the author was, chronolo was, was, was chronology. Well, when I ask, okay, how does one decide what's intended literally and what's not? I think the best thing to do, or two things to do, one thing to do is look at the rest of Scripture. What does the rest of Scripture tell us? And the rest of Scripture tells us that there was, there, there was a historic Adam and Eve. It wasn't just a myth. Mm -hmm. 
that they had a perfect relationship with God. They rebelled against God. So when Paul talks about through the first man, sin entered the world, then death, and through the one man, Christ, life entered the world, it's quite clear to me that there was a historic Adam and Eve. Does that mean that God created Adam by making a clay statue and brought it to life? Maybe that's intended literally. Maybe it's not. But we can look elsewhere in Scripture and draw from that. Another thing we can do is we can ask, if you go back and sort of ask, how would a reader have heard it? Say, at the time of Moses, if someone was reading Genesis 1, how would they have understood Genesis 1? Would they have understood it as a, as a description of how the cosmos is ordered? I think not, because actually everyone in that day had the same basic cosmology. But if you look at Genesis 1 and compare it with the Babylonian story, they're radically different. The Babylonian story has the world being created out of conflict amongst the gods. The world is created out of the dead body of one of the gods. And when humankind is created, they're created to be slaves of the gods. Almost everyone back then who was literate knew about the Babylonian creation story. They actually found a copy of in Assyrian. Moses, being raised in Pharaoh's court, would have been literate. One of the few people who would have been literate. So surely he was familiar with the Babylonian creation story. Somebody reading would say, wow, this is, this is quite contrary to the Babylonian creation story. God is a God who created intentionally, with wisdom, with goodness. Every step along the way, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And when it comes to human beings... We're created in the image of God, and we're created with dignity and responsibility. That's the message they would have heard. They don't think they would have heard the message that says there's, there's, there's waters above and waters below. Actually, the, the language of the firmament above and firmament below in Hebrew is the waters above and the waters below. And you might think of that as being clouds. But in ancient cosmology, there's the idea of a hard dome and there's water above the dome, and then there's water underneath. So in the Egyptian, you have the Egyptian boat going across the sky. And the language in Genesis 1 is that same kind of language. I have no difficulty with thinking that Moses may have thought that way. But was that his message? No, that wasn't his message. His message is what people would have heard. And I don't think it's required of God to clear everything out of Moses' mind and have him write things which would be technically correct today. One of the problems is that what would be technically correct today won't be technically right 100 years from now, which means Genesis 1 would still have gibberish in it that we today still wouldn't understand because we haven't gotten to where science has been able to account for it. So I think when you think about inspiration, God has given us a message which is wholly reliable. Our task is to understand what was that message. And once we hear that message and understand that message, submit to it and believe God. If there's still some tension between us and what science is telling us and what we believe the message is, I think we can live with that tension and believe the confidence of the truth of Scripture. But don't assume when you read something like Genesis that, that Genesis that our way of looking at it is necessarily the way in which it would have been understood back then. So even with Paul's letters, you know, how would people have understood what Paul was saying? Mm-hmm. What would the Greek have meant back then? And you have to try to get back to how people have understood it, and that becomes the baseline for any understanding of Scripture if you want to take Scripture seriously for what it intends to teach. So with that... We're going to contend that scientifically we will prove that we have more questions by coming back at 4 o'clock tonight because our time is up. We're going to close with a song. But let me just give a, uh, a piece of hardware for you for you to run with what Peter was just talking about. Peter was espousing just one view of many views on creation. There's a little bit of the chronology view there. Um, a good read on this is Seven Days That Divided the World by John Lennox. 
And he goes through many of these views that are out there. And, and in, in talking this over with someone recently, what I was taught and what I grew up with is if you don't believe in the literal seven-day creation, that then you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And if you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, you cannot be saved. Now, I was taught that because somebody came along with that viewpoint. And when we utilize that kind of thinking and that kind of teaching... Whether it was meant or not meant, that creates a high level of control from the teacher. The challenge for us intellectually is to do what? Is to focus on, and and what, what Peter just introduced is a magnanimous approach to what we have to do in equipping. Where he was starting to dive into for Samuel's question was hermeneutics. How do we interpret scripture? What is day age? What does he mean by a literal 24-hour period and, and all of that? And, and a very simple thing to springboard into more conversation at 4 o'clock would be simply to say this. A hermeneutical principle. Remember how, how Peter engaged us to say if the atheist comes to us with an argument, a rational, reasonable argument as to why God does not exist, look and examine if that exact argument does not refute the idea that God does not exist, or God does exist. Use that same rational thinking. Well, how we approach, or how some have approached the issue of a literal 24-hour day, Samuel, and and while Lennox talks about this saying seven days it divided the world, that what we've done is we've taken what Peter was talking about, the point, the point that God wanted us to get was about a day? Was it about a day? What was it about? That God created the heavens and the earth. That God created a literal Adam. And the whole of Scripture speaks to that. That, that when you take the, the, um, the whole of the story, you're looking at this, and the rules of interpretation say you have to look at the whole. You don't take one little bit and interpret the whole in light of the one little bit. And so I don't have time to keep going on that. But hopefully that helps you study. You know, why we do this is to get us our, our appetites whetted a little bit so that we do the intellectual honesty of going and reading and studying and understanding rather than just being told what to think and polarizing that, well, I believe in God, so therefore I believe science is, is, is against God. Because science says, not all scientists say that you can't, be here together. So hopefully we've accomplished at, at one level the idea that you guys are going to take an interest in this and that you're going to start to equip yourselves in a deeper level of being able to have this conversation and understand that, that science is not the thing that's antithetical towards God. That science informs us more and more about who God is. It's when we get in with presuppositions on anything that we want to take the data and twist it to our support. And that's where we have to have the conversations. So be ready. Be ready to have the conversation. Equip yourselves. And equip yourselves to get to a point where you can say with all confidence, I don't really know about that. I'm not a Ph.D. level person. But I can find that answer for you. And let's go look at it together. I want to conclude with this verse for you this morning out of 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. That while we want to embrace science because God is the author of science, I also want to remind us unequivocally 
that there will be that part, those who are into uh, a, a materialistic philosophy worldview or a naturalistic philosophy worldview, is exactly what Scripture is talking about. This is one of those passages that gives authority to Scripture. It's what we call self-evident within Scripture. Look at what it says, 1 Corinthians two fourteen through 16. The natural person, how odd, that that's the exact <laughs> word there. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? Folly to him or foolishness to him. Does that sound like the world we live in? Absolutely. Self-evident. Scripture is authoritative here. And is not able to understand them because they are what? They are spiritually discerned. If I can equip you this morning to have this conversation, figure out what you're talking about that is spiritual and what is natural. And understand that a person that... And think about your own self. Prior to coming to knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ, you were that natural man. And so now there's this part of you that can start to understand, start to discern spiritual things because the Spirit of God gives you that ability. You have a different um, preclusionary attitude towards the spiritual things of God because God is changing you from the inside out. He's given you what? He's given you faith. He's given you faith. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to, what? Instruct Him. But we have the mind of Christ. This is where we should rest as the base of our discussions on this topic. And be comfortable with that. Be comfortable with that. Return this afternoon. It's all Q&A. You can... can Ask Peter all about what were you talking about with those miracles? I, I, I want to know more about that. Or what about, you know, the whole evolution thing? It How... doesn't have to just it have to be science. Uh, I, I give lots of talks. So why does God allow so much evil and suffering? Any, any, any question you want this afternoon is fine. Exactly. Like why did Mount Hermon scare, schedule an Arabic conference on this weekend? <laughs> you could ask that question. All right, um, let me go ahead and pray. We're going to ask the ushers to uh, prepare to take the offering this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. We hope that, uh, we hope that you were challenged and encouraged by our format. This is not normal for us. Uh, we do this about twice a year. And so we want to make ourselves accessible to you. If you have any questions, would like some contact, or just would like us to pray for you, There's a card in the chairs in front of you. Uh, Take that, fill it out, drop it in the offering plate. If you're not ready by the time the plates come by, you can just leave it at the kiosk. We're glad that you're here. And uh, this morning, again, remember, we have much happening here throughout the week and prepare for um, Walk for Life and National Day of Prayer this week. And uh, so I want to say thank you so much to Peter this morning and being our guest. And uh, after I get done praying, uh, Stephen's going to come up and close us with a song. Let's pray. Lord, I think of the scripture in Job, specifically chapter 42, where you describe yourself. You describe yourself as the one who has set the Pleiades into their foundation. You describe yourself as the one who controls the tides that you say to the waves, you will go this far and no further will you go. I don't understand how all that works. 
But God, it is the more science that I learn, the more I understand how intricate all that is going on around us, whether it's on a macro level, Father, you know, the universe, creation, climatization, all of that, or whether it's on a quantum level within our own bodies, and how magnificent that creation is, God. That is all science that points to your intelligence, your mind, who has known the mind of the Lord. And so, Father, you are to be exalted. Not one that is to be questioned because it goes beyond our finite ability, but one who is to be exalted. And let us rejoice and embrace in the things that we're learning uh, and we're seeing uh, mankind start to understand about your creation, that all of that, in fact, points to you. More and more and more. And the evidences of that is that there are more and more in the scientific community that have arrived at the conclusion, God, and through your drawing them to you, that there has to be something beyond chance. Thank you for the design that you demonstrate. And as the writer of Romans said, so that we are beyond excuse. We simply need to look at those things around us and know that there is God. Father, bless each of us. Encourage us. Equip us. And provide for us those things that will carry us through Your grace and Your mercy to live righteously in this present world. To Your glory, Father, use this offering and bless those who give. Amen.